pastor climbs the steps of the pulpit. He opens up the scripture. He reads and he begins to to call the people to turn away from sin and to walk in obedience to God, to consider God's laws, to gaze upon them, to memorize them, put them in their hearts, and and, and enact them in their lives in every way. Because God is holy, and he calls us to obedience. At the end of the sermon, the question I have for you is, was it a Christian sermon? We hear a lot of teaching, Christian radio, Christian books. A lot of preaching happens. Um, Is it a good sermon? I could tell you, for example, that after preaching that sermon, the imam stepped down from the pulpit and they continued their Friday prayers in the mosque. Or I could tell you that that story was behind the bima, or in front of the bima in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, because there was something wrong with that message that made it less than Christian, indeed made it anti-Christian, because everything said was true, but it's what was not said that made it toxic. You see, the reality is that, as Brian Chappell's explained many times, there are two assumptions that most of us bring when we hear the Word of God taught. We assume, one, that I can do this, and two, if I do it, God will bless me. And that turns otherwise true things far from Christianity and anti-Christianity because it's a kind of moralism. It's a legalistic focus on us and what we do for God that ends up eclipsing the gospel. Because the reality is, apart from Christ, I can't do it. And even if I did it, I'd still just be a servant, having no, having God owe me nothing at all. Um, many a believer has come to dread reading the Bible, or even dread listening to a sermon, uh, because they haven't been taught how to do it in the life-giving, liberating, empowering way that Jesus teaches us. See, Jesus appeared to his followers after his resurrection to show a radically different way of reading the Bible, of reading the scriptures, not as a book of moral requirements through which we attain God's blessings, but as something far more supernatural, something far more beautiful, far more engaging, far more satisfying. We're going to read the gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning in verse 25, going to 32, and then picking it up again in verse 44, because this is the passage where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples, and they don't recognize Jesus. The Bible says that that God had hidden that from them. And so Jesus is walking along with them, talking with them. They don't even recognize who he is until they get to dinner. Uh, This is God's word, his gospel. He, that is Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if 
he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. And so Jesus went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? A few verses later, Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Here Jesus, after his resurrection, before ascending, makes a high priority in giving to us, his followers, a different way of reading the Bible, saying, don't read it the way it was read to you by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law. But there's a different way to see something here that you might not have otherwise understood. Here he's telling us, what does Jesus tell us? First, well, it's kind of implied that we followers of Jesus frequently struggle to make sense of Scripture. Um, you know, the disciples weren't getting it. He even said, how foolish you are, which had to sting a little bit. But they didn't realize it was Jesus yet, so it was just some guy who seems to really understand Scripture. who's making their heart burn who tells them that they don't really understand. Um, but they weren't getting it on their own. Here, Jesus says their, their eyes had to be opened supernaturally by him. It's not that they were hard-hearted. I mean, they were clearly hanging on every word Jesus was saying, even before they realized it was Jesus. Uh, and, and when he starts to, to head off to go further down the road, they invite him, no, please stay. In fact, they're urgent, like, oh, no, it's, it's getting dark out, it's getting evening, you can stay with us, because obviously they have been hanging on every word he's saying. He's opening up Scripture and allowing them to see something that they couldn't see before, and so they don't want it to stop. They had found somebody with a, a grasp of the Bible that they wanted even before they realized it was Jesus. They said our hearts were burning within us when he talked with us on the road and when he opened the scriptures to us. See, they weren't hard-hearted. They, were just, they just weren't getting it. And we followers of Jesus frequently struggle to make sense of, of the Bible. Um, we all know what that's like. We've all been there. Uh, we're all there still sometimes. Uh, we share in the same fallen condition that the apostles and disciples had, which is a lack of understanding. And sometimes it's, it's the Bible's fault sometimes because, you know, like, like Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 talks about Paul's letters, the, uh, the 13 that make up half the books of the New Testament. And he says, with the authority of an apostle, putting this right into the Bible, he says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Well, there, the Bible just said that some of that stuff in 1 Corinthians about baptizing the dead is hard to understand. In 2,000 years, Christians still don't have a clue what that's even referring to. Uh, you know, he says they're hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. That's helpful. Peter acknowledging that Paul's 13 letters are scripture. They're part of the Bible, alongside the New Testament, Old Testament. But, but he's saying that sometimes the Bible's not completely clear, because you know, when you're reading the New Testament in particular, you're reading the mail of people who died 2,000 years ago, and you only have half the conversation often. 
Um, I remember me trying to read 1 Corinthians as a brand new Christian, former atheist, brand new Christian in 1990, sitting in Dobie Room 235 uh, on the campus of the University of Virginia. Somebody had given me a Bible. I started in 1 Corinthians, and I had no clue what he was talking about. I mean, I just remember, I was like, maybe if I turn it this way. No, that doesn't seem to help either. I was, I was new at reading the Bible. I was new in my Christian faith. I didn't know what I was supposed to be looking for. I didn't have a frame of reference theologically from which to, 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 to hang these into categories, this data that was pouring into me. Um, I didn't even know what questions I should be asking of the text in front of me. Um, it was a time in which I was very confused, as were, I was as confused as these disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You know, we've all been there. We all know what that looks like. We followers of Jesus frequently struggle to make sense of what the Bible is trying to tell us. And therefore, what can happen is we can miss Jesus, even if he's right in front of us. You know, it wasn't until these disciples sat down across from Jesus and he opened their eyes that they could recognize that he was right there all along. And it's easy to miss Jesus when you're asking the wrong questions of the Bible. When you're opening up a passage and you're reading it, but you're asking questions that aren't going to lead you to Jesus, aren't going to enable you to see him and what he's actually doing in you through that text. Um, you know, when you bring moralistic assumptions that the Bible's basically a list of to-dos and to-don'ts, and, and God will bless me if I do that. If you start with that, you're not going to get anything out of the Bible, except you're either going to become really self-righteous and angry, or you're going to become really despairing and give up because you're going to miss Jesus. I remember a membership class probably 20 years ago or more um, where you know one new member was talking about what it was like for her to discover this whole different way of understanding the Bible as being about grace. And I remember she, she said, you know, I'd always thought if only I could go through the Bible and write down every single command and get them all on a sheet of paper or six, then I could go and make sure that I don't break any of those and I would live in God's blessing. And, and this is somebody who was raised in a conservative evangelical Christian church, you know, who still is thinking that this is a rule book. Uh, we followers of Jesus struggle to make sense of it and can therefore miss Jesus even when he's right there. And that's why what Jesus says about the Bible is actually so incredibly revolutionary because what Jesus says about the Bible, he gives us a, a new paradigm by saying that every single passage of Scripture, the entire story is about me, about Jesus. It's a new paradigm that it's all really about Jesus. Look at the way in the text here that Jesus keeps repeating the phrase all. He talks about all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. He said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All the prophets, all the scriptures, everything in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms. Jesus is stressing that everything in the Bible is about him, about Jesus. Every chapter, every book, all of it what Jesus said when he rebuked the, the pastors of Israel in, in um, John chapter 5. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. In 1 Corinthians, what we just read, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians that when I, when I came 
to you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Do you hear that? Paul saying every single sermon is going to be about Christ crucified. Every single chapter, all of my writings to you, every instruction I give is really all about Jesus and him crucified for our salvation. You say, wait a minute, Paul. You taught about a lot of things other than Christ crucified. You taught about marriage, Paul. Yes, he did. He said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. When he talked about marriage, he was talking about the cross in which Jesus died for us in order to make us holy and radiant and acceptable to him, seeing us in our nakedness all the way down and saying, I will never leave you, I will never abandon you. Full disclosure, complete acceptance. That's what Jesus did for me and says, spouses, do that for yourselves. When he talks about marriage, he's talking about Christ crucified. Does Paul talk about holy living and walking in obedience to God and disciplining ourselves so that we don't walk in sin? Yes, Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people and that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What was the grace of God that's appeared to all humanity? It's Jesus. When he talks about obedience, he's talking about Christ, our Savior, about grace. It's all about Jesus dying for us because he loves us. All of it. It's a new paradigm. Every single scripture is about Jesus. When he instructs us to see the Old Testament as being all about him, every single scripture, Jesus doesn't specify certain texts in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that are about him. Because what we would do is we would say, oh, I see. He's saying there was long-range predictive prophecy, and so there are predictions, maybe dozens of them, in the Old Testament that Jesus would come. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying something far more radical. He's saying, when you open up Proverbs, learn about Jesus crucified for you. When you open up the Psalms, when you open up the prophets, when you open up and you read in Deuteronomy the regulations for solving an un unsolved murder, ask yourself, where is Jesus here? What is he doing? You know, because those long-range predictive prophecies, they're there, maybe like a jillionth of a percent of the Old Testament, but they're there, sure. But, but what he's saying is something so much more radical. He even uses the Jewish divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, and even today in Judaism, Judaism the, our Old Testament is broken up into those three sections. The Torah is the Law of Moses, the first five books, and, and the, 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 the Nevi'im are the prophets uh, from really major and minor alike from Elijah and Elisha all the way through to Malachi. And, and then the Kethuvim is the wisdom literature, typically centering on the Psalms and sometimes simply called the Psalms. The Tanakh, these three sections, from the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. He said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me where? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. All three divisions of the Old Testament, Jesus saying, are about me. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, this is the only place in the New Testament where this three-part division occurs. Jesus makes it clear that he is the subject of these scriptures. And that when it comes to God's promise, 
He is at the very center of that promise. The entire story from Genesis on is about Jesus saving a people for himself. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said that whenever you see in the scripture God acting as a redeemer to his people, there you are seeing the work of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, God's redeemer. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Jesus Storybook Bible, everybody who knows a child has read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's the thing to get if you've got little tiny kids. Um, it's amazing. And when Sally Lloyd-Jones was asked why she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, here's what she said. I wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible because I wanted children to know the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you're supposed to be doing. It's about God and what he has done. It's the story of about, about how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It's a love story. It's an adventure story. And at the center of that story is a baby, the child upon whom everything would depend. And every single story in the Bible whispers his name. We followers of Jesus frequently struggle to understand the Bible. Because of that, we can miss Jesus but Jesus here gives us this radical new paradigm that every passage of scripture is ultimately about Jesus because it's a part of a larger story of a God who rescues his people, calls them, and becomes their own Lord and Redeemer, their lover. So what this means is that every scripture is ultimately about grace because it's about Jesus and the grace of that comes to us in him. So if it's always about grace, practically you're probably wondering, maybe you're wondering, what questions should I be asking when I open up a passage of scripture so that it doesn't become this oppressive thing that I dread that I think I have to do in order to get God to bless me, but I can actually open it up and receive this love letter from my father in heaven pointing me always and only to Jesus who is pleased with me on account of his own blood shed for me. Practically, if it's all about grace, the big question we got to ask is, where is the grace of God in this passage? And how does God want me to experience his grace through this, through Jesus, the giver of grace? Um, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote an introduction to the Gospels, um, a brief instruction on what to look for and expect when reading the Gospels. And in it, he emphasizes how important this question is. He says, don't look at Jesus as our example. In other words, don't ask, what would Jesus do? Ask, what did Jesus do for me? Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for a moralist reading and a defeated faith. Jesus, not as example primarily, but primarily as gift. Luther says it this way. He says, there is besides the still worse practice of regarding the Gospels and the Epistles, the letters of the New Testament, as law books that teach us what we're to do, and the works of Christ are pictured as nothing but examples to us. Uh, where these two erroneous notions remain in people's hearts, he says, neither the Gospels nor the Epistles may be read in a profitable or even Christian manner. They remain as pagan as ever. 
he continues, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you can take Christ as your example, you must first accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given to you and that is your very own. This means that when you see or hear Christ doing or suffering something, you don't doubt that Christ himself with his deeds and suffering belongs to you. Jesus is yours and you are his and nothing can change that. He says, on this you may depend as surely as if you had done it yourself. Indeed, as if you were Christ himself. See, this is what it means to have a proper grasp of the gospel. That is of the overwhelming goodness of God, which neither prophet nor apostle nor angel was ever able fully to express in which no heart could adequately fathom or marvel at. This is the great fire of the love of God for us, whereby the heart and the conscience become happy and secure and content. He concludes, so you see that the gospel is really not a book of laws and commandments which requires deeds of us, but a book of divine promises in which God promises, offers, and gives us all his possessions and benefits in Christ. In other words, don't start by asking, what would Jesus do? You're not Jesus. Ask what Jesus did and what he's doing for you now and how then in response to that you can live in his love and walk in faithfulness to him. So when you're opening a passage of scripture, how do you find the grace? It can look like so many different things. How does this passage strip me of all of my own self-righteousness and leave me exposed as a shameful sinner in word and heart and deed, desperately needing Jesus. If you ask that question, you're going to end up with Jesus. And you're going to see his gospel and his grace and his love for you as being so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. You know, how in this passage is it warning me not to spurn his grace? How is this showing me the futility of life without his gospel, without grace? How is he giving me a discipline of grace like a father disciplines his child? You know, the Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he rebukes and disciplines. Uh, because he's trying to make us well and bring us to him, dependent upon him. So even discipline becomes grace. How does this passage show us the blessing of a life that's dependent on grace? How does God give himself to us in covenant here, committing himself to us no matter the cost? How does he give us new life here? How does he unite us with Jesus? How does he justify us, declaring us righteous before God? As if, as if you had fed the 5,000 and you always did what pleased the Father and you would raise Lazarus from the dead because Jesus' you know, resume has your name on it now because you've been justified, you've been declared righteous, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. How does this passage speak of our adoption into the family of God as children now of the Father and siblings of Jesus? How does God here fight our battles for us? How does he conquer our enemies as our king? How does he free us from our own bondage to sin? How does he, he promise help at the front line? How is God here protecting us from the lies that we would otherwise wallow in and allow to deceive us? How does he, God himself, become not just a soldier or a general, but a warrior on our behalf? How do we how does God point us here to the means of grace, pointing us to his word, pointing us to him in prayer, not prayer as a duty we do to get God to bless us, but because it's for that relationship that God saved us. 
How does he point us to the sacraments and to his church, his spiritual family? Grace can look like so many different things. These are all different permutations of the same question. Where is the grace of God in this passage? See, scripture is constantly pointing us to our own weakness and God's sufficiency in Jesus. You know, St. Paul, you know, when, when he was, you know, suffering from some thorn in the flesh, he doesn't say what it is. We don't know if it was medical or spiritual or what. But three times he says, I asked God to take this suffering from me. And Jesus said, no. Instead, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, there's a kind of Christianity out there that's all about power and control and and getting our way and changing the world and divine healings and you know all these amazing testimonies about how everything is just so powerful and awesome and you can be strong in god and that's not what i see in the new testament or even the old testament what i see in the new testament is that god helps us see our weakness so that his power becomes evident so that his strength is there it's like even in the old testament reading the story of of David and Goliath, if, if you think that story is about how you can slay your Goliaths by faith, then you're missing it because it's not a story about David's strength. David is this puny kid, you know, barely able to hold a shield. He doesn't even have a sword, you know, he, he can't hold it. He's too weak. All he's got is a slingshot, this little kid with a slingshot against this mighty, powerful guy. Um, and he hits him on the head, Goliath dies. Chops his head off, basic family-friendly sermon illustration. And, uh, and the story isn't that the battle belonged to David. The battle belonged to the Lord, is what God said. Because it was God's power in our weakness, where God keeps us dependent and broken. He'll use your health, he'll use your family members, he'll use your church, he'll use your own sin to show you how much you need Jesus. And when he does, Jesus is going to become so much more beautiful to you, so much more desirable, so much more amazing, because we share the same fallen condition as the original recipients of Scripture, and therefore we receive the same grace to speak to that own weakness and need, our insecurities, our fears, our pride, all of it the gospel is continually speaking to, pointing us to Jesus, who means that we don't have to deliver anymore because Jesus has delivered for us. He is a God of forgiveness and grace. And that's how a changed life happens, you know. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sin. Grace is not a softening of God's commandments. Far be it from that. God is, and it's not a, a taming of God. God is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders. He is a consuming fire. He is not to be mocked. We're told to consider in Romans by Paul, the gospel guy, to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. He is a consuming fire, but he's also your dad. That consuming fire, if you have Jesus, is your dad, and he is wild about you. He's not an angry ogre shaking a stick at you. He's Papa, and he loves you, and he gave up his own son because there was something he wanted even more, which is you. Grace is the air that we breathe. It's the, the food and the drink through which we thrive. When, when Jesus opens up the scriptures so that we can see how it's all about him, and it's all, therefore, all about grace, it changes us. Um, you remember in Luke, I think it's chapter 7, when 
when Jesus had dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. Um, and so you have like this upper middle class triclinium, Roman dining room, probably opening up a new courtyard. And they're all reclining around the food on, on you know, pillows and uh, on the floor. And, and here he is with all of these self-righteous pastors, you know, the Pharisees. And, uh, and then this sinful woman comes in. And all we know is that she's a sinful woman. That's how she's described. Um, probably prostitute or something like that. And, and she comes in and she takes her little flask of, of very expensive perfume that, that enabled her to do her work uh, being surrounded by all these sweaty men without you know, throwing up continually because it just kept this constant perfumed smell right below her nose. And she took it and she snapped it in two and poured the perfume upon Jesus. And she wept upon Jesus and, and her hair washed Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees, the pastors, are all nudging each other saying, hey, if this, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. You know, meaning he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus talks to Peter, not Simon Peter, Peter the Pharisee. He says, uh, uh, Simon the Pharisee, Simon, he says, um, when I came in to your house, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed me with, her, with this vial of perfume. You didn't you know, wash my feet, but she's washed my feet with her hair. And he tells a parable says a guy, I'll summarize it in modern English, uh, imagine a guy is, has two people that owe him debts. One of them owes him a billion dollars and the other owes him $20,000. And he forgives both of their debts. Which one will love him more? And he says, well, I guess the one that was forgiven the billion dollars because you might be able to scratch together $20,000, but a billion, you're never going to come up with. There's, there's no chance. Uh, and he's like, you answered correctly. See this woman? She loves me much because she's been forgiven much. You don't love me because you haven't been forgiven much. Because he who loves much, or he who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves very little. In other words, if you really want to obey Jesus, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Okay, how do you get more love? I want to obey him. How do I get more love? What's the magic? What's the trick? Come on, tell me the potion. What do I pray for? Um, Jesus says, to love me, you have to be forgiven more. You need a deeper experience of my grace, of my sufficiency in your weakness, in your failure, in your sin, in your insecurity, in your pride, in your fears, in your inadequacy, seeing me wash you and love you as you sit in your filth and just let me love you and delight over you in song and cleanse you of unrighteousness and, and take you into the family of God and, and love on you and sing over you in song continually, night and day, lifting you up out of yourself into the experience of one who has been loved by Jesus. Something changed in that woman. Something aesthetic changed, whereby Jesus became more beautiful than anything else she had ever seen, and she was willing to break that vial and give up her sinful career just to have Jesus because he was more beautiful, the first man who had ever loved her for her sake. And when Jesus does that for you, 
And when that captures your heart, it sets you free because something aesthetic happens whereby Jesus becomes beautiful to you. And you want to spend time and you want to see him in his word because he is a man of grace whose heart, his heart beats for you. I read a story a number of years back during the Syrian refugee crisis about a young woman named Mariam, which is Arabic for Mary. And Mariam lived in a Syrian neighborhood that had been scarred by shrapnel and bullet holes and barrel bombings. And, and, and you could just imagine the fear and the hurt and the despair that filled her heart. And as she and her family, like so many others, escaped the fighting and made their way on a harrowing journey to a refugee camp across the border in Jordan, she began to experience uh, or interact with people that are different than anybody she had interacted with before. Within that camp, one afternoon, Mariam encountered something that she had never before experienced. She met a follower of Isa, a follower of Jesus in Arabic, an infidel, an unbeliever in the language of her people, but something seemed different about this follower of Jesus. She wanted to understand why her new friend believed in Jesus and not in the teachings of Islam. And she ex so this friend explained to her about the love of Jesus and the hope that she has in Jesus. And Mariam was curious, and she wanted to learn for herself. She didn't want to just accept what she had always assumed to be true based on her family background. She, she wanted to ask questions, and so she started reading about Jesus. And as she read the gospel accounts of Jesus, something began to happen to her. Jesus was not like the teachers of Islam, where the focus was on us and what we're supposed to do to avoid God's judgment. What she saw in the gospels was so very different. She found a God who favors sinners over the people who think they're righteous. You know, a God who loves his enemies, even giving up his son. She had always known from the Quran that God was merciful and compassionate. But here in Jesus, she saw that mercy and that compassion incarnate. The Bible was so different from the Quran. And as she read, something in her heart changed. It wasn't all at once. It wasn't a momentary light bulb. It, it happened over a, a, a season. But you can almost imagine her waking up one morning and thinking to herself, Jesus has become beautiful to me. More beautiful than anything else on all the earth. You can almost see the moment when she gets down on her knees and prays, Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God, and I now worship you and receive your gift of eternal life and receive you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for forgiving my sins. You are now my Savior, and I call upon you, my King. Almost immediately after trusting in Jesus, Mariam started going to a Bible study that was in the camp, which can be a very risky thing in a refugee camp. Um, where the vast majority of people are, are Muslim. Uh, and, and as she learned more and more about Jesus, though, her joy wouldn't be contained. It was like bubbling up out of her. She couldn't just stuff it in. She knew God was now her daddy, her father. And Jesus had washed away all her sins. And, and God was no longer a distant judge, but her dad. And her father in heaven delighted in her. And Jesus had saved her and given her hope and a future. And she was filled with gratitude. And, and even though every cultural and religious value pressured her to stay silent, Mariam began talking telling her friends about what she was learning. And this was so different 
from the religion that they had all learned at home. A God who loves sinners? A God who sacrifices himself for his enemies? The excitement was unstoppable, and Miriam's friends wanted to see for themselves, and, and more and more of them started to read the Gospels themselves, and they began to see Jesus as their Savior, and they began to trust him. And so Miriam had to help start more and more Bible studies all around the camp, and, and she began to dream of seeing all her fellow refugees filled with the joy that comes from knowing that God is pleased with you on account of Jesus. That God took note of poor, unwanted refugees that no country would take in, and he saw them, and he loved them, and he rescued them. At one point, Miriam turned to a, a Westerner who was working in the same camp, and she asked a question. She said, how many Jordanians and Syrians are there? Well, these were the only two countries that she had ever lived in, and she wanted to know the total population. And they answered her, about 30 million. And what she said was this, I want to see 30 million people become followers of Jesus in my lifetime. See, she came to see Jesus, not as an example to follow primarily, but as a savior, as a gift. And it changed her. It changed her and made her eager to tell others about him. Let's pray.